Welcome, everyone, to the AI and Business Podcast. I'm Matthew DeMello, Senior Editor here at Emerge Technology Research. Today's guests on the program are Melissa Easy, Vice President and General Manager of Clinical Technologies at IQVIA, and Tim Riley, Vice President of Clinical Data Analytics at IQVIA. They join us for two special episodes on the program to talk about the current state of AI and life sciences in clinical trials. Throughout today's episode, Melissa and Tim underscore the extent that clinical trials are changing thanks to data and how life sciences will change as more people seek clinical trials as a form of alternative care. Without further ado, here's our conversation. Thanks so much for being on the program with us this week, Melissa and Tim. Thank you for having us. Yeah, great to be here. So starting with where we are currently in healthcare, I I find so often per sector what we're doing on the show now is just kind of taking the state of AI adoption as we see it. And just given the influx of artificial intelligence that we've seen in clinical reporting and analytic spaces of life sciences already, especially during the pandemic. We've seen this blossom post-pandemic. What are the biggest challenges now facing life science leaders when it comes to streamlining clinical analytics now that we're emerging from the COVID-19 era of drug development? Melissa, we'll start with you. So that is a really big question, but a a fun one that I quite like to debate. So I, I would say right now, post the pandemic, As a whole, the industry is pausing and starting to think about what does this mean? And not just with AI, but in general, because during the pandemic, something called DCT or decentralized clinical trials became very popular. But what people did was they threw a whole heap of technology and point solutions at problems that clearly, because they were point solutions thrown at something, created a number of downstream operational challenges. And so I think right at the moment, the whole industry is stepping back and thinking through, well, actually, what is the data flow of a study? How do we how do we really support the users being the doctors that run the studies, you know, patients, etc. And then on top of that, not only if we have this data, what are we going to apply to the data to really bring through some of those insights? And I think at the moment there is a lot of debate. People have a lot of different opinions. A popular popular one that people are debating right now, very specifically, ChatGPT, where that can and can't apply in a clinical trial because there are regulatory sort of needs that we must meet and guidelines. And and does ChatGPT, for example, because this is what a lot of operational people are coming to us about, does it actually meet the needs? And it will for certain use cases, but not others. And so, again, I think at the moment people are taking a step back saying we've got more data than ever before in a clinical trial. I think a tough study that I was looking at suggested that we now capture three times more data on an individual phase three study than 10 years ago. And from memory, and I really hope this is correct, I think it's something like 3.4 million data points per study. So, So when we start thinking about what to do with this data and giving people insights, you know, no human can consume that raw data. So so this is why I get quite excited about this particular topic. So the pandemic put, you know, immense pressure on 
all the clinical trial timelines, all, you know, even the, not just the COVID studies, but all trials that were occurring at that time had a lot of time pressure to them because, you know, things like you know, patient recruitment, there were less patients going to doctors, less diagnoses being provided, which then lowers the amount of patients who are even aware of a trial. Folks had trouble even following the protocol or, or the visit schedule associated with the clinical study because they couldn't travel to the sites. And then monitoring of the study, you know, sending clinical research associates out to a site during a pandemic was very, very challenging because of the protocols that different hospitals and facilities had. And so, you know, there was a lot of focus on, you know, how do you mitigate that and what technologies and data can we bring to the table? So, you know, we were, we, we spent quite a bit of time looking at, you know, algorithms that could predict which sites were seeing patients based upon which sites were allowing even clinical research associates to, to be there, which, which sites were open to non-critical visits. Right. We saw a big focus on technology allowing interactions to occur remotely, you know, the virtual appointments. And then as, as Liz mentions, new data sources. You can't right. go to the hospital to get the data collected for the clinical study. You need to still have that, that data collected somehow. And that opened up a, a new set of connected device type capabilities. And as, as all of this occurred, it creates more data and the tools to manage that data compound significantly and the focus required to solve it increases. Absolutely. Absolutely. Melissa, you brought up large language models in your last answer. I know there's been this huge explosion of interest with chat GPT. We know this is going to have a gigantic impact on healthcare to make the understatement of the year. Just where we see the crossover in terms of, you know, pulling from new data sources, having tools like that, that won't be a data source. And, and most of the folks, you know, listening at home realize that off the bat. But like an LLM is a portal to that information. We also need to be careful about where we're collecting it and how we're collecting it. Just to put a bit of nuance on your answer or the last two answers that we've heard in tandem just for the, the concerns here. But in your view, this is a moment, a, a lot like the pandemic itself, where the technology is new and we can kind of see once we get over the initial hurdle of adoption that there will be a, a, a clear future with this technology. Feel free to go down this road with large language models or, or other AI capabilities that you're seeing around clinical analytics and, and drug targeting. But what are new ways that we're seeing data make a difference in terms of these workflows that we couldn't realize, say, back even in the middle of pain. I don't even I don't even think large language models were on anybody's radar in healthcare. Seriously, and correct me if I'm wrong. I would love to hear about it, at least at the beginning of the pandemic. Yeah, so I think I think a lot has changed. It's actually Tim's going to have some some very interesting insights. So I look forward to those two. Sure. But one thing, one thing I do want to say, and this is where I think people don't realize there is a distinction, is there is a distinction between healthcare and clinical trials. And the rules that we have in clinical trials are very strict, and they should be, because this is about people's health and safety and lives. And so sometimes what applies to healthcare may not apply to a clinical trial because we have to go through this very regulated and quite rigid process to prove that whether it be a drug, a device, you know, 
is actually working and doing what we said it would and not not doing anything undue to people with certain types of genomics, et cetera. And so may, maybe I use the chat GPT example here. And again, this is where a lot of the work I do is helping operational people who don't understand the technical. I try and bring it into make, make the technical English in inverted commas, so that's easy to understand. So when I think about a use case in healthcare, if we think about how many different articles are published weekly for doctors on new findings and outcomes of trials and studies and and various papers, there is no way a doctor can keep up to date with that. Like there's just too many for them to possibly read. If you couple that with the fact that there is data suggesting that we are going to have a shortage of doctors compared to what we have now in sort of 10 plus years, something like HRGPT is going to be great because a doctor can use it to search and it doesn't need to be chat GPT. I can definitely, I'm, I'm just repeating. Of course, of course, it's just an example. <laughs> Operational staff at the moment is that you would be able to, the doctor can put in the various things and all the relevant papers can come up. So they can actually look and go, actually, there is some sort of new suggestions and research that says we should. Whereas in a clinical trial, actually talking to patient about an outcome when the whole point is we are sort of researching what is happening to the patient, that is going to be It's going to take a lot longer for us to be able to apply the technology there because we need to be very careful that to even get a drug to market, regulators are going to be asking a lot of questions and are already asking a lot of questions around any AI that has been applied and saying, show me where this algorithm came from. How do I know that what it's saying is true? And and there is a lot of proof on showing where things started, mm-hmm. you know, et cetera. So having to do a lot of stuff in parallel to prove to regulators that in actual fact, there is no bias, there is nothing coming out of right. the algorithm. And so I think there are certain use cases in clinical trials that are just going to be really slow compared to healthcare because healthcare, we've already proven that it's safe. We've already, you know, done a lot of the work. And so I just think that There's no distinction sometimes in clinical trials versus healthcare, and there actually is quite a big one around the regulations. Of course, of course. And we I love the nuance of your point because of course, you know, we're we're not talking about healthcare on the show all at the same time for where we need to be pulling sources of information from the lines are starting to blur. And I liked what you were putting on, you know, a finer point from the regulatory standpoint, you know, HIPAA doesn't have to do that much with clinical trials on what you were saying before about life science, not being healthcare, but now we're starting to see the same kinds of concerns playing in as those lines blur. Tim, we were excited for your answer to the last question. So I don't want to go too far down this rabbit hole. Great question. A lot around like design and planning of a, of a clinical study, right? So, so there's a significant amount of data out there that allows us to look at populations to see what characteristics patients have who may have a certain condition, where those patients may be geographically, what countries they may exist in, what comorbidities may exist that can help both identify molecules and treatments to seek, as well as help fine tune the the inclusion and the exclusion criteria or the qualifications for a patient for the study 
using that type of data and those types of analytics. In addition, you know, as you progress through the clinical study, things like planning, what, what countries should you run a clinical study in? What medical groups and facilities should participate in that cl clinical study or should you approach to participate in that trial? And then even more recently, things around diversity and inclusion. You know, how can you use the data available to make sure that you are targeting medical groups and organizations and countries in a way that the patient population in the clinical study represents the patient population of the disease in, in the general population. And then voice of the patient. You know, I, I think a critical aspect of a clinical study is to make the patient burden as low as possible to collect and, and understand the effect and safety of a treatment. So how can we design our clinical studies using patient burden scores, for example, to ensure that the trial is, is designed in a way that minimizes that burden? There's a variety of other things that are more you know, operational. You know, things like investigator payments, you know, paying the physician who is participating in the study, making sure you're doing it that in a way where there's no duplicate patients, there's no fraud, there's no other types of issues. A document processing, you know, a single clinical study generates countless documents that all need to be filed digitally. They need to be of high quality. They need to be indexed with the, you know, who the patient was, who the physician was, what, what type of document et cetera, et cetera. And we now can use you know, technology that didn't exist eight years ago, for example, to have that done automatically versus having you know, an individual have to look at each document one by one to understand that information. Absolutely. We've got another episode with you guys coming up where we're going to get into patient experience and data, large language models, generative AI, items like that. But I want to pull a few of the use cases you just mentioned that we might not have time for in that episode and and really dig into them a little bit. With something I, I'm really intrigued by that you just mentioned, and I'm hoping we can we can pull it apart for a little bit, is this notion of voice of the patient. First and foremost, because I've been saying for a long time that healthcare and and this you you really have to brace people to point this out because it can come off callous. You're comparing the healthcare industry to the banking industry when I do this, but a lot of what I'm seeing in terms of AI adoption and banking and financial services and how they think of the customer experience is very much mirrored in what I see in healthcare and, and now life science is what you're saying in terms of the patient experience, the voice of the patient, where the bank thinks about voice of the customer and customer experience. I'm almost I'm waiting for someone to mention on a podcast patient journeys. And if that's a thing, that would be prescient. At least it would feel that it way. I'm, oh, it is. On, it is something. There we go. You heard it first on, on the AI and business podcast. You're learning right, right along with me. But I, I think that reinforces my point in terms of how we're looking at these things. Obviously, there's there's a big difference between a patient and a customer that goes without saying. But tell us a little bit about voice of the patient. It has to go beyond social media, especially with how often hospitals and even healthcare biotech organizations are touching patients. Right. So when you think of a of a clinical trial, right, depending upon how the the clinical study is designed, it may require you know a patient to go visit a, a doctor, an investigator, a medical group, you know, could be once every two weeks for two years or once a month for two years. And, and for some conditions, you know, particularly at, with, with older populations, 
that may not just be the patient who needs to go on that visit. It may be a caregiver or a support family member, et cetera. You know, that requires travel time. That requires, you know, spending a little bit of time in, in the waiting room. And it requires, you know, time actually, you know, speaking with the investigator and, and, and the other resources on the project. Not to mention any procedures that may occur as part of the, the clinical study. You know, obviously there's a lot of data being collected depending upon the indication. You know, some of the procedures may require, you know, some, some downtime or, or may have other side effects or may be uncomfortable, right? And so when we look to design clinical studies, we need to quantify as best we can the burden on the patient and the burden on the individuals in that patient's life who are participating. And we can, we can quantify some of that patient burden based upon surveys that, that we may send out to, to understand what aspects of a clinical study patients find most inconvenient or most convenient, and then use that information as we design the study. Are there procedures that aren't necessary to understand the safety and effective, effectiveness of the study? Can more studies occur or more visits occur remotely? instead of having you know, on-site, on-site visits, et cetera. And we, we can collect this data about the patient burden you know, to, to quantify the voice of the patient and use that information in our trial design. But when we think about the patient journeys and as we start throwing more technology at clinical trials, we have to be really cautious of the burden that we're now placing on patients. So it's always really sat historically with the sites, so the investigator or the doctor, whereas now some of that's shifting to the patient. So we need to make it as easy as possible. We, It's funny when you talk about banking and, you know, not wanting to compare the two. We have started internally referencing the patient experience and journey as needing to be a consumer-grade experience because sometimes it's easier to go buy a house online than it is to participate in a clinical trial. So a lot, a, a lot of work is being done to improve that. And, and I think that it's really key because that burden might, now they've got to remember to charge devices. They might have to remember to inject something, fill out a questionnaire. They might, you know, so we've really got to think through their journey and exactly what we're asking them to do and making sure that it's not too burdensome. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I feel much more validated now. I feel like I've had to go about that on eggshells up until this point between comparing uh, and I'm sure that's been felt in in the industry as well but I mean everybody on the inside knows that's that's for the best you you want patients to be treated you know like the like the bank thinks of uh, of their customers it'll mean better patient outcomes and we see that borne out in the data I, I want to go back to one more use case Tim mentioned before we head into recording the next episode which everybody can check out but he mentioned diversity inclusion I know these are big buzzwords right now. Let's bring true meaning to them. And I'm also very, very interested. You know, I know this is a big concern at the front lines of healthcare, let alone life sciences, but I'm really interested in terms of the data points there in terms of of you know, the use case and, you know, what specific metrics are coming to light to make a difference in clinical trials on that basis. Yeah. So I don't have the, I don't have the exact metrics, but for example, we can look at the general population and see what percentage from a, a race and ethnicity perspective has a given condition. And what we have found is a lot of the clinical research done in the past 
has had has underrepresented those populations in the clinical study, right? So, in other words, molecules in some cases are, or clinical trials are being executed for a new treatment. We're running clinical trials to determine the safety and efficacy. Those treatments are getting approved and then rolled out to the general population, and then the general population looks different than the population in the clinical study. So, so I think the first is, you know, as we design clinical studies, clear understanding of the patient population that has the given condition. And then we can use available information that may exist in electronic medical records, census information, claims data, et cetera, to understand, first of all, what portions of the world or a, a country have patients with a certain condition. What sites have patients who meet the, of those, which sites have patients that may meet the, who may have the same race and ethnicity as the general population? And combining that information, we can target the investigators and the sites, not just with the patients who meet the inclusion and exclusion criteria, but those that actually have the same race and ethnicity requirements or same race and ethnicity characteristics as the individuals who have that condition in the real world. Yes, yes, absolutely. I mean, it, there's a lot of promise with this technology, and that makes it especially important to be really clear and transparent about the potentials here, especially, you know, we get into buzzword city and it, it's very easy for this all to sound much more uh, good to be true than otherwise. Right. So it's very, very important to get the data out there. What I like about this is it's not just buzzwords. It's not people just sort of saying, oh, we need to of do course, this. Yeah. There is also like regulatory authorities and it's different in every country, but they are now starting to have requirements where as part of your sort of protocol plan, you have to lay out what kind of diversity sort of goals that you have and how, you know, you're going to meet them. And if you don't, you need to explain why. So perhaps it's a rare disease and, you know, that, 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 you know, you just get any patient who has the particular disease, you know, is sort of accepted and taken. But, but in other studies where you can meet diversity sort of goals that people are being forced to or being forced to explain why they haven't. So, so that's what I mean by it's not just buzzwords. It's not just something, yeah, people are talking about. Well, and, and just to put a finer point even on, on what I'm saying right there, I mean, for so many years, we couldn't do anything about these problems because we didn't have the technology. And that, that yes. creates an atmosphere of a lot of lip service, a lot of bad marketing, you know, that expounding to the problem. And now that we do have the technology in many ways, and, and it just, it, it again underscores the importance that we have to be transparent about what this means because because a lot of it has a lot of potential to do a lot of good. Melissa and Tim, I think that wraps us up for our first episode. Thank you so much for being with us this week. We're looking forward to talking with you about patient experience, data, and large language models very shortly. Thanks. Looking forward to it. Before we close out today's episode, I just want to underscore that we started out by saying AI, especially underscoring the fact that life sciences is not healthcare, even though thanks to a lot of the forces we discussed at play in today's show, that life sciences and specifically clinical trials are going to be sought 
more often as a form of alternative care, thanks to the amount of patient experience capabilities that are going to be built into the processes. Also, that a lot of these trials are going to be a lot less varied, have a lot less variables involved. They're going to churn at least more accurate results or more predictable results on a multitude of front, given that they are being enhanced by AI capabilities. I think when we carry all of that into the spotlight of what we're talking about, especially in the life sciences space, we see the crossover at the same time. We need to remember that these are two different disciplines as much as we see life sciences and specifically clinical trials being sought as a form of alternative care. On behalf of Daniel and the entire team here at Emerge, thanks so much for joining us today on the program, and we'll catch you next time on the AI and Business Podcast.